0: Please turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. What is the fabric of society made of? Now, say it again. What is the fabric of society made of? Relationships. Relationships. Marriages, families, friends, cities and towns, states, countries, communities, neighborhoods, offices and workplaces. All of life is held together by people who are in relationship with other people. And it seems extremely clear and plain as day, but we were created not to live in isolation, right? We were created to live in relationship, in community, with others. This starts with the reality that everyone in this room is born, was born, to a parent or parents. Whether you are estranged to your parents or close to them, the reality is you are born into a community. As a person, as a human, born to other humans. But here's the thing from infancy the moment we we're born all the way through our adolescence all the way into adulthood relationships are messy aren't they relationships are messy we learn this early on all the way into the all the way into the rest of our lives i think that resonates with everyone we we've all experienced the messiness of relationships that are prone to tension and disorder. I mean, think about the relationship with your spouse or with your children, your parents, your friends, your fellow students, if you're a, a student here, your boss, your co workers, your neighbors, your relationships within the church. It's not always clean, it's not always clean, it's not always a walk in the park. Relationships are good, beautiful. And they are necessary, but they can be messy inside and outside the home, inside and outside the church, inside and outside the workplace. And so in a world of messy and often disordered relationships, what do redeemed, restored, renewed relationships look like? What do they look like? Our passage today is going to address that question. Uh, This morning, we are going to continue in our journey through the letter to the Ephesians. And thus far in the letter, in chapters 1 through 3, the Holy Spirit has told us through the hand of Paul who the church is in Christ. He has told us that the church is made up of A new humanity, people who are blessed, chosen, predestined, adopted, redeemed, forgiven, united, saved, and sealed in Christ by the Holy Spirit. And then in chapter 4, and into our passage this morning, the Spirit tells us how the church ought to live together with one another in Christ. Starting in chapter 4, Paul moves us from doctrine to devotion, from knowledge to practice, And the church is called to walk in a worthy manner, to put off the old self with its darkness and devastation and to walk in the new, to put on the new self, the righteousness and holiness of Christ. We are called in these chapters to maintain unity and to grow in maturity. We're called to walk in newness of life, to imitate Jesus' love and light and life by walking in love, light and spirit-filled life, with one another, in our homes and in our workplaces. Jesus, as Paul has, has told us over and over in this letter, Jesus changes everything. He changes everything. He turned the world upside down. He changed the world from the inside out with his life and his resurrection. And he changes and renews our relationships. Which brings us to our passage this morning. So please turn in your Bible, if you haven't already, to Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to be working through Ephesians 5, verse 21, through chapter 6, verse 9. It's going to be a large passage this morning. It's going to be a lot said. We're going to, this, is, this is going to be a long haul this morning. But here we go. If you don't have a Bible, please grab one under a seat near you. If you don't own a Bible, you can take the Bible that is under the seat near you. We'd love for you to take that home with you. You'll be helped to keep your Bible open to this passage. Ephesians 5, 21 through 6, 9. Let me read and follow along as I read. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you, and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service, as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will, as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bond servant or is free. Masters, do the same to them, and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Let's say that together. Thanks be to God. Amen. I'm going to pray and then we're going to dive into our passage. Father, we ask now that you would speak to us from heaven through your living and active word. Open the eyes of our hearts. We ask that you would renew our minds, that we would not just be informed by your word, but that we would be transformed by it. And Lord, I ask that you would strengthen your weak and imperfect servant now. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing to you. You, the one who is our rock and our redeemer. In In the name of Christ that we pray, amen. Amen. Well, to guide our time this morning, here's the main idea and the outline for our passage. Here's something for you to write down in your notes. Here it is. It should be up on the screen. With new life in Christ comes new relationships. With new life in Christ comes renewed relationships. And we see this in marriage, in verses 21 through 33. In the family, chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. And in the workplace, chapter 6, verses 5 through 9. With new life in Christ comes renewed relationships in marriage, in the family, and in the workplace. Now, before we dive into this passage, I'm going to enter it and walk through it. I wanna make two comments and one observation. Two comments, one observation. First, I know that many of you in this room have lost a spouse or many of you in this room have lost a child. And I recognize that hearing a message on marriage and parenting can be difficult. God's word is sufficient, and it is good, and it is profitable. It speaks into our lives. All of it. Past, present, and future. So I want you to know that I see you. I know in part what you've been through. And most importantly, God knows and sees what you've been through. That's my first comment. Second, I approach this text with some fear and trepidation. Uh, because if we're going to talk about marriage, family, and work, then we've got to talk about authority. We've got to talk about submission. We've to talk about headship. And uh, I don't know if you noticed, but those are four-letter words in our culture. No, no one wants to think about those or really talk about those. And if they do, it's usually in a pretty degrading and dismissive way. I think we generally think, the world generally thinks about those words in the context of the subjugating patriarchy, sometimes abuse. But at the end of the day, if we wish to think rightly and orderly and biblically about the relationships in our lives, marriage, family, workplace, then we need to go to the Word. We need to submit ourselves to the Word in faith and practice in our lives. And we need to pursue a faithful reading and understanding of it. Third, we need to make a, a a large, overarching comment here. This is a key observation between the previous verses in chapter five and into Paul's words here in five twenty-one or twenty-two, all the way through the end of the chapter. Paul uses a, a transitioning verse. I don't know if you notice that. Look with me there at verse five twenty-one. Chapter 5, verse 21, submitting or submit or be subject to one another out of reference for or fear of Christ. This verse really functions as a bridge between what a spirit filled life looks like and song and thanksgiving and what a spirit filled marriage looks like, what a spirit filled family looks like, and a spirit filled workplace looks like. And so let's be, let's be clear on this at the outset in our time together this morning. Submission is not just for women and wives. We are all called to submission in one form or another. No one gets a pass on this this morning. No one gets a pass on this. We are to submit to one another in the church horizontally as we submit to Christ vertically. Our life as Christians is characterized and marked by the cross. It's even shaped by it. We submit to one another horizontally and we submit to Christ vertically. And the church ought to be a place where Christ-like mutual submission in all relationship exists with the Lord's help. So with that that said, let's dive in. Point one, with new life in Christ comes renewed relationships. We see this first in marriage, verses 22 through 33. This will be my longest point this morning of the three. Some have said that marriage is man-made as a social construct. Have you heard this? The outcome of evolutionary process. One man once told me that he didn't believe in the institution of marriage because he didn't believe in social contracts. But marriage wasn't created by a man. Nor the state, nor an evolutionary process. It's not a social contract, nor a construct. No, marriage is a covenant relationship created and instituted by God himself. We read of this in the beginning of Scripture, back in Genesis, back at the beginning of our Bibles. You don't have to turn there, but there we read that God created all things and he did so in in complementary relationships. It's been noted by many before me, he created land and sea, sun and moon, heaven and earth, male first and female second. This is called the created order. And we read in Genesis 1 through 2 that God created Adam in his image. And placed him in the garden home to work and to keep it and to lead it and have dominion over it. And after man was created, Eve was created then in the image of God. And Genesis 2 says that she is a helper, a companion fit for him. Bone of his bone, flesh of his flesh, made from his rib. One pastor, one pastor makes the fantastic observation that Eve was not taken out of Adam's head to top him neither out of his feet to be trampled on by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected by him and near his heart to be loved by him. Isn't that wonderful? It's a great quote. In Genesis, we see the first marriage in history. And we read in chapter two, verse 24 of Genesis, that therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh one person. In the garden, marriage had perfect complementarity, companionship, equality, and unity. But then in the next chapter, if you know your Bible, in Genesis chapter 3, we see that perfection disintegrates. Paradise is lost. Sin enters the world in one single act. And at that moment, sin enters the bloodstream of humankind. And with it comes inequality, pain, strife, subversive disorder, and every marriage has been impacted by this. So in light of Genesis 1 through 3, and in light of Paul's call for Christians in the church to submit to one another, and to Christ ultimately, in verse, you know, in 521, uh, let's look at our passage more closely now. 522 through 24. Let me read those verses one again, once again. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the church, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Submit means to yield to the authority or will of another. And in the Ephesian context, submission was connected with disdain. To give you a small window into this, Uh, pulling from several commentators, this is what submission looked like in the Jewish, Greek, and Roman context of Ephesus. Uh, Jews had a predominantly low view of women. Uh, In the Jewish form of morning prayer, there was a sentence in which a Jewish man every morning would give thanks to God that he is not a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. In Greece, home and family life was near to being extinct. Fidelity was completely non-existent. In Rome, in Paul's day, the matter was worse. The marriage bond was in complete breakdown. A girl was completely under her father's, a wife completely under her husband's power. She was chattel. Her life was one of legal incapacity, which amounted to enslavement. Does that not make you cringe? Does that not kind of make you feel a little sick to your stomach when you hear about that? So what does submission look like according to Scripture? What does submission look like in the Bible? Well, first, it says that a wife should submit to her husband, not just any man, not just any man, but to her husband, the one that she's in covenant union with. Second, it says that wives should submit in everything because their husband is the head. Similar to how Christ is the head of the church and is its savior. Just as the church cherishes Christ and comes under his good authority and submits to him, a wife ought to cherish her husband and come under his good authority, this does not mean that a wife should submit to her husband in sin or submit to a husband that 's leading her into sin against god 's will and way and word that 's not biblical that 's not what submission is here, but a wife should submit insofar as her husband leads her in a christ like way in a christ like way. Not as one who is inferior or unequal or disdained, but as one who has a complementary and submissive role to her husband. And this flows from the created order that we read back in Genesis 1 through 3. The husband is the head, the leader. More will be said on that in a moment, so you'll get yours in a moment, men. The wife is a partner, companion, and cherished helper in all of life, like a body is to the head. Now, this doesn't mean that a woman cannot work outside the home or a husband can't do the majority of parenting or cleaning up in the home. That's that's not what this is talking about here. How a wife functions in her role alongside her husband can look a variety of different ways. It can. But an orderly marriage includes the husband as head and the wife as the body, intimately connected but different in role and different in responsibility within the marriage. This is what Paul means when he speaks of godly submission under Christ first and also under the husband second. The spirit in this text is actually upholding a high view of women and a high view of the wife's role here. So wives in this room, how do you think about submission? Husbands, how do you think about submission? What does godly submission look like in your marriage? If you're unmarried, thinking biblically about these things before that day is wise. It's wise. If you are married, consider your marriage and then consider this passage and discuss it with your husband this week. Talk about this openly. This is a good conversation to be had. Ask, are we thinking about submission biblically? Are we thinking about it or in a more worldly way? Well, if you think these are um, are harsh words to women, uh, well, let's look at the harder words to men here. Look with me at verses 25 through 33. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the words, that he might present the church to himself in splendor However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Where wives are called to godly submission, husbands are called to godly love. And in a world of confusion about what masculinity is and what love is and what this means for our marriages, what the Spirit says here to men is radical. The Spirit is calling husbands here in this text and all men in the church by principle to lead in sacrificial love. A love that is primarily characterized by giving up instead of receiving, just as Christ did by entering the world in his person and work, in his life and his death and his resurrection. And so, in love, men, you are to love your wife, you are to enter her emotions and live with her in an understanding way. You are to lead her, cherish her, treat her as the apple of your eye. This type of love requires sacrifice of time and energy, hobbies and preference. The Spirit is clear. This is the role and responsibility of men. This is the role and responsibility of husbands, when men tell me about how their wife just won't submit to them, my first question is, how and where are you sacrificing? Where there is godly submission, there is godly sacrifice. Where there is godly sacrifice, there is godly submission. These two go together. They're two sides of the marital coin. In decision-making, finances, parenting, plans, vacationing, marital submission and sacrifice go together. They go together. And it is all characterized and should be characterized by Christ-like love. And men, this deep love is displayed and lived out when you come alongside the Spirit's ongoing work in the sanctification of your wife by cleansing her, washing her with the word, as it says in verse 26. The word sanctify there means to purify or to make holy. Just as women are means to the Lord's ends in sanctifying their husbands, Men, you are means to the Lord's ends in sanctifying your wives and by cleansing them with the word. This is your primary responsibility. Do you take it seriously? Do you take this seriously? As head of your marriage, this means that you are responsible in part for your wife's godliness and not just her happiness. You've heard the statement, right? Everyone in this room has heard this. Happy wife, happy life. You've all heard that? But it has been said that you're not chiefly responsible for your wife's short term happiness. Men, you're responsible for your wife's long term holiness. So, men, wash your wife with the word, with this book. The word that is sufficient and is profitable. This doesn't mean that you share a quiet time in the world, in the word. This doesn't mean necessarily there's a secret formula. Okay, okay, so some intentional time plus a handful of verses plus a prayer equals adequate washing. Brothers, washing your wife with the word is, is not an event, it's a leadership lifestyle. It's not an event, it's a lifestyle of leadership. So are you regularly taking your wife to scripture in seasons of anger and anguish, anxiety, apathy? Again, this is not an event. This is a lifestyle and perfection. I'm just gonna say this now. Perfection is not required. Pursuit is. Perfection is not required. Pursuit is. Ultimately, Christian marriage is a signpost as we read here. It's a signpost that points to the relationship between Christ and his bride, the church, which is why Paul goes on to say, like a husband that purifies his wife, Christ is purifying his church by word and spirit. So that verse 27, look there with me. He might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Earthly marriages are a shadow of that cosmic marriage between Christ and the church. That's Paul's point here. Christ has sanctified his church by the word. He is sanctifying his church by the word and he will fully, ultimately sanctify his people, his church on the last day by the word. In other words, in Christ, the church has been made holy, is being made holy and will be made holy on the last day. And Earthly marriage is a living and breathing mural. It's a mural of the relationship between Christ and the church. Uh, John makes this clear in Revelation 19. He Picks this language up. Talks about a marriage feast between Christ and his bride on that last day. Paul is making it abundantly clear here. The role of, of a submissive wife who respects her husband, as it says in verse 32... And the role of a sacrificing, loving husband coming together in an orderly and godly Christian marriage is a living mural of the relationship between Christ and his church. We should not miss that. That is Paul's ultimate point here that there's a relationship between marriage and what we see in the church. And, beloved, Christ is the head of the church, and he loves it as his own body. And we are united in him as his body globally and locally here at EBC. That's Paul's point there in verses 28 through 31. Do you have this view of marriage? Do you? God does. God does. Well, then Paul says in verse 31, therefore, and every time we see a therefore, we should ask, what's it there for? 31, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a direct quote of Genesis 2:24. And then the Spirit concludes this section with verses 32 through 33. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. A marriage is a one flesh union that reflects the one flesh union between Christ and his people, the church. And we see here that Paul lands this chapter with that language of mystery once again from chapter 3, and he's referring to the mystery of the gospel, right? you remember that from chapter 3? It's the mystery of the gospel. This is where he lands the plane. A marriage is a shadow of that cosmic marriage between Christ and his church, and that was established and fully made visible in the work of Christ. What is that mystery and what is that gospel? What are the details of it? Well, that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. And those who believe are become, become a part of the believing ones, the church. On the cross, Christ took the punishment. He took the punishment for your sin and my sin. He took the punishment for that rebellion that we see back in Genesis 3 that got us into big trouble. As a substitute in our place, he took the punishment for our sin, Yours and mine on the cross. This is a mystery that is far too beautiful even for us to fully comprehend. And three days later, after he died, he got up from the dead. He resurrected and he later ascended into heaven and reigns at the Father's right hand in glory and he will one day return for his bride. Oh, we look forward to that day, don't we? And there's only one response to this good news, brothers and sisters, if you don't know Jesus and have a relationship with him. There's only one response, that's repentance, repenting of your sin, all those rebellious ways that you live in thought and action and deed and turn toward Christ in faith and repentance. Today, don't leave this place without doing this. Today, if you have questions, I'll be standing in the back after the service. I would love nothing more than to talk to you about Jesus, his gospel work, and how that informs and impacts all of your relationships. Well, we should conclude this section. It's extremely important to read this passage in the context of the letter. This is key. We should read these verses chapter 5, chapter 6, particularly these verses on marriage, in, in connection to Ephesians 4.20. You don't have to turn there, but Ephesians 4.20, we read that the church learned Christ, right? They learned Christ. It has been noted by one pastor that it is Jesus who treated women with courtesy and honor in an age where they were despised. He truly liberated women. He embodied a gentle And compassionate and gracious posture toward women and wives. And he established a pattern of sacrificial love in marriage. And when we learn Christ, we learn what it is to submit and sacrifice to one another in love. Jesus changes everything for our marriages, friends. Jesus changes everything for our marriages. And he also changes everything in our families and in our parenting. For Jesus said, let the children come to me. He said, let the children come to me in a, in a period of history in which children were seen and not heard. Where unwanted babies were put on the trash heap outside of town. Much like the hospital incinerator that we have today. Or were abandoned and used for slavery and prostitution. Jesus Not only liberated wives and women, but he liberated children. And he changes and renews the relationship between parents and children. That's what we read next. So that brings us to point two. Point two, with new life in Christ comes renewed relationships. And we see the second in the family. The biblical understanding of family is under attack, isn't it? I think we could just look around us. The biblical understanding of the family itself is under attack. And this isn't a recent phenomenon. It isn't. Uh, this is an ongoing struggle in history. It's been ongoing. A struggle that dates back to the first family back in Genesis where we read about Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel. We all know how that ended. <laughs> Cain killed his brother and Adam and Eve were banished from the garden. That's the state of the family outside of Christ. And therefore the Spirit addresses families here and he begins verses one through two. Look there with me. Children, obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and you may live long in the land. Here we see a second example of submission, don't we? Children are to submit and obey to their parents. Obey their parents. Uh, What does it mean to obey? Well, it means to simply come under the authority of your parent. And why are children commanded this? Why are children commanded this? Well, because no child is born good. No child is born good. We are all born with an anti-authoritative spirit. Same blood in our veins ran through Adam and Eve. Every child and parent actually knows this in this room, don't we? We know this. And this is why the Spirit goes on here and says and addresses children. Isn't it amazing that Paul speaks directly to children here? Can we just stop, stop for a moment? And just notice that, that Paul is addressing, the Spirit at the hand of Paul is addressing children. It's like children. <laughs> Clearly there were children amidst, in the midst of the, the people of God, in the midst of the early church. There were children present in the reading of this letter. I think it's amazing. It's incredible. He it says, Children are to obey their parents first in the Lord in these verses, meaning that the work of obedience can only be done with God's help. And second, because it's right. And third, because honor is on the line. Children should obey and respect their parents to listen and respect them, to honor them in accordance with the fifth commandment. For when, when there's respect and there's honor between kids and their parents, there's blessing and prosperity. But when, when kids are disrespectful and disobedient, To their parents. There is struggle and there is curse. So children in this room, listen up. Listen up. Do you know that your parents are a gift from God to you? Do you know that? Honor them. Obey them. Respect them. Even if you disagree with them, commit to them in love and grace. obedience. Well, after addressing children, Paul presses on into fathers. Verse 4, he says, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. It's interesting that mothers are not explicitly mentioned here. Did you notice that? Mothers aren't mentioned here. Let's look at the first half of the verse. First, we should ask, what does it mean to provoke or exasperate your children to anger? What does it it mean to do that? It is to knowingly push them over the emotional edge with harsh anger, with legalism, asking them to do something that they're not capable of doing, or to anger them with sarcasm, just to have a laugh at their expense, or even inconsistent parenting does this, where the child thinks day to day, does does my, my parents still feel the same way about this as they did yesterday? That's how you stir up anger in your kids, by by inconsistency in that way. This all leads to confusion. It all leads to anger. These are all ways that we can exasperate our children. And ultimately, we who know our wives and children the best know how to also frustrate them the best, right? We who know our children the best and our wives the best know how to frustrate them, but we're not to. We're not to provoke them, but instead we are to train them and raise them in the discipline of the Lord. in instruction of the Lord. Again, it's interesting that mothers are not explicitly mentioned here. Though mothers are critical to the spiritual life of their children, okay? Mothers are integral to that. But men, just as you lead, cherish and nourish your wife, you are to lead, cherish and nurture your children. To raise them in the Lord. This is first and foremost your responsibility, It's yours. It's no one else's. It's not your wife's. It's not the church's. It's not the private schools. The primary role of discipleship in the home is between the father and the children. That's what Paul says here under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And we should adhere to it. Men, you are to spiritually lead your house, not your wife not your child or another. It may seem heavy. I know it's heavy, but it's true. But it's true. This text is a call to faithful discipleship in the home as you help your wife and kids learn to follow Jesus. So I want to give three applications. I want to take this to the pavement of our lives, to fathers in this room, and men by principle in this room. Take this to the pavement of our lives. Here are three ways, three applications in light of this passage that you can raise your kids in the fear and admonition of the Lord. Number one, bring your kids to church. Bring your kids to church. Even if they're in rebellion, they are under your care until they're an adult. So bring them to church. Engage them in that way. They're actually watching how you love and engage the church. They will model themselves in that way. They'll model you in that way. Two, initiate family worship. Initiate family worship. If you have young children, pick up... uh, a book of the Bible, a couple times, even just a couple evenings a week. Just read with the kids. Pray with them. If you're wanting another resource, Kevin DeYoung's The Biggest Story Bible is on the bookstall back there in the back right. I can see it in the back right of the table. It is worth purchasing. Our kids are loving it right now. Kevin DeYoung's A Biggest Story Storybook Bible. It's on the bookstall back there. So first, bring your kids to church. Second, initiate family worship. And third, initiate one-on-one time with your kids. This is precious and important. Think about the amount of time that you work, about the the amount of time that you spend on pastimes, and try to at least somewhat match that. In some ways, try try to match it with engaging your kids. Just consider your time, consider your calendar, spend some time with your kids in one-on-one time. Just requires time. These are just three, three of many. And it's important to remember again, again, perfection is not required here, pursuit is. Perfection is not required, pursuit is. And Jesus frees us up, Jesus, Jesus frees us up to pursue this and not be pummeled by it. And I think it's also important to remember, I, I should note here for, for parents, for fathers and, and mothers, that you're not in charge of your child's salvation. No amount of training them and spiritual upbringing is going to save them. That's above your pay grade. It's above your pay grade. That's God's work. So pray to that end. Pray to that end. Seek accountability if you're if you're not doing this now. Seek accountability. Pray with your wife about this and do the work with the Lord's help. Jesus said, "Let the children come to me." So let your children also come to you. Be present with them, prioritize them, love and cherish them. Pour into them the word and love of Christ that it may dwell richly in them. Well, the spirit at the hand of Paul here has been speaking into our relationship of marriage. And he's been speaking into our parenting. And now he's going to turn and speak into the workplace. So point three. With new life in Christ comes renewed relationships. We see this third in the workplace. Here Paul moves from relationships in the home to relationships at work. And we should get this out in the open. When Paul speaks here of bond servants or slaves, he's not speaking of slavery as we know it. This is really, this is really important. We're not going to understand this passage if we, if we read our understanding of slavery into it. He is not speaking, Paul is not speaking here of southern antebellum race-driven, ethnic-driven chattel slavery here. He's not. Slavery here in this context in this text is servitude or bond servitude. Let me briefly explain that. If someone was in debt they would work off that debt by working for someone else, by working for a master. So it's important to recognize that, and we should note that here, when he talks about the master and slave relationship, we should really be reading more, more of a, uh, an employer-employee relationship in many ways. Uh, again, just to, just to get this out in the open again, just to say this clearly, uh, Scripture never condones the kind of abuse, abusive slavery that we saw just two or three generations ago here In America that tragic blemish it's embarrassing in our history it's not that's not what he's talking about here he's referring to servitude or bond servitude Uh, and many families would have food and shelter and some level of comfort because of this sort of servitude also this was very common in the Ephesian context and the majority of culture was slaves the majority of people were slaves or, or servants in people's homes or workplaces. So, Paul is addressing a majority here. And in our context, he would be speaking again to all classes within the workforce the blue collar, the white collar, everyone in between. So, let's press in. Verse five, Paul says, Bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. Here is another plea for biblical submission. Servants were to submit to their masters with fear, not scared fear like shaking your boots fear, but respect and reverence with a sincere heart, just as they would submit or look to Christ with respect and reverence and sincerity. Paul is getting at the heart of work here. He is saying, Christian, you may be a bond servant, but you have dignity and status, not in simply what you do for work, But in ultimately who you serve as you work. Not just on earth, but that master who is in heaven. Christ Himself, and Paul makes this abundantly clear in verses six through nine. He says, "You don't work for verse six. I service as people pleasers, working to impress or to be seen, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. Knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bond servant or is free. Did you notice the repetition there? In the Lord, in the Lord, in the Lord. When you work, you do so as a servant in the Lord." to Christ, as you do the will of the Lord, verse 6, as you serve the goodwill as to the Lord, with goodwill as to the Lord, in verse 7, and and you will receive back what you serve and how you serve from the Lord, verse 8. It's like Paul is saying, Christian, yes, you serve an earthly master. Yes, that's true. But know that in serving him or her, that you're really serving me. Your identity is caught up in me. You serve me, not simply that master. Here, Paul is restoring and reforming and renewing the dignity of all workers, all Christians who work, and renewing the purpose of work right here in these verses. He is speaking less also about work ethic here. I think this is important to note. Less about work ethic and more about how in all that we do, if we are indeed a Christian, we work for Christ. This passage gets even more incredible, though. He then turns to masters. Look there with me, verse 9. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. This is incredible. Paul's turning the workplace upside down, isn't he? In the world then and now, in a time where identity was determined by status, And by title, Paul's like, hey, if you're a Christian master, you were to treat those under your care just as you would want to be treated. With the same respect, with the same dignity, this is life-changing for this context here. This is life-changing and countercultural to our context here. It's radical then, it's radical now. The church is to live, whether gathered or scattered, in our homes and in the workplace, with unity and identity in Christ and not by anything else not by anything else, not finding our identity and status, but finding our unity and identity in Christ alone. Christians, servant or master, employee or employer, we're all to be known by our culture of mutual love, culture of mutual care, submission, and sacrifice in our midst here in the church, in in the midst of our homes, And in the midst of our work. And ultimately, considering this, considering here, these verses in the context of the rest of the letter, in the relationship to the whole chapter here, Paul's point here is that we are to imitate God by walking in a worthy manner in love and in newness of life. And that is to impact our workplace relationships. And it's to impact all of our relationships in the home for our good And ultimately, for God's glory. So, how do you think about work? How do you think about your position at work, whether whether on the employee side or on the employer side? How do you treat others at work? Paul wants us to consider how we treat others here in this text. Even if you're retired, You know, many of you in this room are retired. How are you still working in these areas of life for the good of others, to the glory of God? Beloved, no matter what you do in your workplace, your identity, your dignity and purpose is not primarily defined by what you do, but it's defined by who you serve. So work well, freely, excellently, Diligently, with the Lord's help, knowing that you are under the watchful eye of your master who is in heaven, Christ Jesus himself. Concluding this section, just as Jesus liberated those in the home in marriage and in parenting, it has been noted that he also liberated the employer and the employee, the servant and the master. He taught the importance of work and relationship with others. He himself was a carpenter, right? He was a carpenter. He served others tirelessly. He washed his disciples' feet, and he ultimately came not to be served, but to serve by laying his life down for his people, for his church. He is our model and motivation in home and at work. Well, we should close. In a world of messy and often disordered relationships, what do redeemed? Restored, renewed relationships look like in a world of confusion and, and androgenized gender and roles, in a world of no fault divorce, in a world of absent parents and anti authoritative children, in a world of, 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 of partiality in multiple areas of life, particularly in the workplace. Where do you turn for clarity and for renewal? Where do you turn? Christ and His Word. You turn to Christ and His Word. The gospel work of Christ and His countercultural Word turns our homes and workplaces right side up. Turns it right side up. So, with the Spirit's help, let's pursue renewed relationships and walk in a worthy and Christ like manner in mutual submission and sacrifice and love in marriage, in the family. And in the workplace and in the church, all to the glory of God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for marriage, for families. We thank you for work. We thank you that you have redeemed marriage and that you have redeemed families, and that you've redeemed work in the work, the perfect work of your son, Jesus. And Lord, we ask that you would help us pursue our marriages, pursue our children, and pursue our coworkers in your love and your grace, looking for ways to submit and sacrifice with a cheerful heart. Lord, we admit this is hard work, And we admit that it's a large task, but we know that you are bigger than that task and you will enable those whom you have changed by your grace and by your spirit. Continue to change us, we pray. And it's in your son's name that we pray. Amen. Amen.